Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. Nope. We are storytellers that talk about storytelling, Dorothea. Are we? Well, I am. Oh, well, that's good. At least one of us should be. (laughs) All right. So, Dorothea, this episode, we're going to focus on a conference I just went to. And it was really cool. A lot of really great information. And it was not only great as far as the specific information that are helpful to writers, which I'll share some of that, but more about the community aspect of it and some of the things they did at the conference, which either intentionally or unintentionally were very, very effective. But first, let's do an update. I am still working on the fourth Gods and Martyrs novel. actually wrote some of that in the airport on the airplane. I did not write any at the conference because, honestly, I was just kind of mentally exhausted from all the stuff that we learned. But um, I got some writing done, which was fun. But there were some things I learned at the conference. I would hope so. (laughs) What a wasted trip. (laughs) It was very uneventful. We all just sat around and complained about how hard it is. Looked at each other going, what do we do now? (laughs) No, um... (laughs) No, so some things I learned in regards to at least the Gabby Wells series is that I probably definitely have to change my book covers. Which is, is kind of a bummer because we really do everybody like loves, the book covers. Yes, everybody loves our book covers, but everyone thinks they're not geared towards young adults. Yeah. So even in a discussion with a fellow author about his book covers, we were talking about you never want to give the the potential customer a reason to say no as they're scanning through all the books. So if they're looking at the books and they just look at mine and just don't perceive it as a young adult novel, even if it's cool cover, they're just going to keep moving. And the big thing is really you need the, the main characters to be more prominent on the book covers. So... I'm going to have to redo those, and I'm not too happy about that. Yeah, it is It is really a bummer. But it's kind of cool, at least for us, because we do have a fantastic book cover designer, and you do have those final versions all the way through Gods and Martyrs. So, you know, you can keep that in, in your Gabby Wells memorabilia, and, and hopefully we'll still be able to utilize his work in the future, because he is really wonderful. He really is awesome. But it's just, it's one of these things where it's not what I want to do, it's really what I have to do. Because I have to decide how much energy I want to put into that book series. Now, I haven't done any marketing zero since the release of the first book because I've been working to write the next three and then I can do a whole bunch of marketing things and try things out. So I purposely haven't been marketing those. So I was going to do a push with that. But if everyone's consistently saying that that needs to change, well, then it needs to change whether I like it or not. It's kind of like in writing where you write something that you really love, but you have to cut it. The kill your darlings thing. Yes. uh, Sometimes you got to kill your darlings. And in this case, it would be these book covers. Another thing I learned, which was actually a validation of of something I was considering, is that I should never have released the first book when I did. I should have released all four books at once or them right in a row. Kind of like what Elise was doing with her series. And there were a couple of writers at this conference that were starting out and, and about to release their first book. And everyone's like, no, if it's a series, wait, wait, wait. Because it's that it's really hard to rebuild momentum. So, But again, it's, it's kind of a situation where we both knew that when you released the first book. <laughs> was... We talked about this and we said, you really shouldn't be releasing this book now. But you had reached a point with this story that you had been writing it for such a long time. And I think that if you hadn't, release the book, then you wouldn't be writing anymore. I think you would have just given up on that whole series because you wouldn't have seen anything come out of it yet. So 
it's kind of a, a situation where, yeah, you shouldn't have done it. But at the same time, it was important for your creative development. Yeah, actually, if I Artists didn't... Artists are so needy. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't actually hold a book that I had written soon at that point, yeah, it would have been really hard. I needed validation that this was going to end in something I could actually tangibly hold and, and say, yes, I've actually written a book. I needed that sort of mental leap. But looking at the release of Lost and Found, when I released that book, I'm like, man, I should have waited. I finished Sins and Suicide, and it's so frustrating because I just got the the paperback book cover from my book cover designer. And I think I'm going to print a proof copy of that just for me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I'm, I'm not going to release that book. Yeah, well, because especially if you need a new book cover. Right, right. Gosh, this is so upsetting. I love our book cover I designer. Know. No, well, I'm going to try to keep the designer. I just am frustrated that that work can't be used in that series. I may just reuse that design in another series. You yeah. Know, we'll see what happens. But anyway, um, it's it's the way it works. It's very common, though, that authors will have to change up book covers to try to spur a little more interest. So I'll give it a shot to see if I need to continue on that series or move on to the next one that I'm working on. But, you know, this isn't unique to you either right. when it comes to changing up book covers because I'm even going back way further into history the Bible? The Bible? Has changed well, there books. have been a lot of different <laughs> Bible book covers. But what I was actually thinking of was Pride and Prejudice. It's Jane Austen's most famous work, and it's a beloved story all over the world, really. And there are so many different book covers for that story because it's in the public domain because right. she's been dead for such a long time that no one really owns that anymore. So we could print that story and sell it. Like, that would be legal. It is in the public domain. Let's do but, it. Um, <laughs> But the funny thing about that is, is that because it is in the public domain, people have come up with all these different book covers for Pride and Prejudice. So my want to purchase that story, because I already have the story for free from Project Gutenberg on my Kindle, so I can read it whenever I want. But I don't ever purchase the hardcover book unless I like the book cover. So in this case, it's very strange because the story doesn't matter at all. It's entirely dependent upon, "Mm, do I like the way this one looks? I'm also a really big fan of fan art. I love when you know, these really talented artists are able to create beautiful pieces, whether it's, you know, an actual physical piece or it's a digital artwork. There are a lot of digital painters who just create these absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous pieces of artwork online. And it's so cool to see that because sometimes they perfectly envision something that you had in your head, or it's even greater than that for a story that you both clearly love. And it's even cooler to me seeing art that's affiliated with something you already have an emotional connection with. I also love concept art books for movies because I love watching the process of, okay, how are we going to bring this story to life visually? So that is a really important thing, whether it's a book cover or fan art or concept art, you know, how you bring the story to life visually is is a big deal. Yep. Yep. So that's on my to-do list. I, I got a long to-do list coming out of this conference. It's always a good thing. Yeah. But let me give a little background on the conference itself. There were three podcasters that are also collaborators as writers. David Wright, Sean Platt, and Johnny B. Truant are the three authors that work together in various forms to create a lot of works. And they they create a lot of material. Don't they have a subscription service to their books because they have so many? They were doing that. I don't know if they still are. Actually, I don't know. But yeah, they they were writing so much that they created a subscription service, which is a commitment on their side to actually keep writing. That's intense. Yeah. So they do produce a lot of work, a high volume amount of work. But one of the most important things they've done, at least from the writing perspective, is that they created a podcast called The Self-Publishing Podcast, where they have shared just their experiences and all their successes and failures and and have just been very open in the process. 
when they were starting to rise up in the independent publishing scene was in line with where the whole Kindle gold rush, they called it, started, where Kindles were new, Amazon needed them populated with material. The traditional publishers weren't going to do that, so they opened it up to everybody. And so people were just buying just anything to fill this cool little device. And they were kind of in that wave a little bit. They, along with other authors like Joanna Penn out of the UK and Lindsay Broker, who does fantasy, they were all in the early stages of this and productive in writing and also sharing their information on podcasts. So there's been a great amount of generosity in this independent publishing community. And so there's been this growing fan base as people have come on to the scene like me and to try to become a published author and to develop a fan base that there's thousands and thousands of us who have listened to these people, learned from their mistakes and been inspired by them and have have tried to uh, do what they've done. So they have a very large following of people that are very grateful for the information that they've shared. You know, in my experience, the creative community has always been pretty generous. There are so many artists online who I've seen do tutorials. If you want to learn how to draw, do this. There are a lot of writers who create blogs solely for prompts. They're like, hey, this is an idea. Go for it. Write something. There's another blog that I follow that is two martial artists, and they have a blog called How to Fight Right, except right is spelled W-R-I-T-E. And the concept is a lot of fight scenes in books are unrealistic. They're not actually things that would happen because most authors don't have experience fighting. So these guys, they take submissions, they take questions, and they say, okay, if this is your scene, is this realistic? And they don't answer everyone who submits to them, but they do consistently post. So that's cool to read too. And it's just, it's awesome to see how supportive everyone is of just wanting there to be more out there. Right, right. It's more rewarding to give than it is to receive. So that's a very natural tendency. And the independent publishing community has been very, very open and great about that. So what these guys wanted to do was to create a summit for literally to make artists smarter. So that's why it was called the Smarter Artist Summit. And they brought all the leading people in this independent publishing scene to come in and just share information with authors like me. So it was in Austin, Texas, where one of the writers is based. And it was in this really kind of basic warehouse-ish, kind of, I don't know, hipster warehouse-ish sort of thing called the VUCA. I think it's, that's the way it's pronounced. And it was just an open space where they had three chairs up front for them and another chair for the presenter. And it was that the presenter would present and the rest of us were just in chairs on the same level as them. So they weren't on a stage or anything like that. And because of that, it created very much a community sort of interaction. So it wasn't like an us or them. It was never presented as an us or them sort of situation. It was like, look, we're all in this together. Let's talk to each other. Let's listen to these presenters. Let's find out the best way to do what we're trying to achieve. And one of the cool things that they did is next to this open space where everyone was sitting was like a second story area that introverts would go and there was no talking allowed in the introvert section and this was really smart because a lot of writers are introverts and it's important if you're not an introvert or never really understood it is that being an introvert doesn't mean you're shy it just means that being in front of people was kind of exhausting or uncomfortable you know shy people don't want to talk to anybody but introverts don't mind talking to people but when they're done they're done they're maxed out and they need to be alone 
because this was one big open space, they had a separate space for these people to go and, and recharge. One of the presenters, Joanna Penn, she's awesome at presenting, but she's also an introvert. So as soon as she was done, she went up the stairs and sat down on the couch and didn't talk to anybody for like two hours. It's like refilling your batteries, honestly, right. because I am an introvert. So it's, it's again, it's not that you're shy or that you don't want to talk to anyone. It's just that it is literally physically exhausting to be around other people. And you reach a point where you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pass out now. I'm just right. going to, I need to go lay down in my house yeah. where no one is. <laughs> Well, you know, extroverts get energized by interacting with a lot of people and introverts get exhausted from that. So anyway, so writers, a lot of them are introverts naturally. That's one of the reasons they're writers. They like to be by themselves. They're energized by that. And uh, they like to create worlds. So it was really smart that they're aware of that and took that into consideration. So I would say that probably, and I'm, I'm guessing, 60% of the people there were introverts. So it was, it was really interesting. Well, and another thing to consider, too, getting into just introversion conversation is that sometimes you don't necessarily have to be interacting with people to be exhausted by being around a bunch of people. Right. And this is just the way that a good portion of the population is designed. It's just the way that their brain functions. So it's not high maintenance. It's not any of these other negative terms that are often affiliated with introversion. It's just the way that their body consumes and conserves energy. So, you know, you think about workspaces now in America. Cubeland is probably exhausting for introverts because they never have a moment where they're able to just decompress. Right. For me, I know that I like to have lunch by myself, and that's not because I'm antisocial and I don't want to talk to my coworkers, but I'm literally surrounded by people all day. And it's good to just have a minute to sit outside and be like, okay, got to re- re-energize myself here before I go back in. Yeah, I mean, that, I'm not an introvert. I, I think at the terms ambivert, it's kind of like not quite an extrovert, but more comfortable than an introvert. But there are times where I take my walks and I don't want anyone around me. It's just, or when we're going to go out and my wife will say, hey, we're going to go to this party or this gathering. My initial reaction is is reluctance, not because of the people or anything or the event. It's just I know how exhausting that is going to be for me. But when I'm there, I'm having fun and I don't sense any of that. But when I get home, I am just completely drained. So it was great that they took that into consideration and made a special place for that so that even if people didn't use it, they were aware that it was there. And so there was a comfort level. There was a security blanket for them if they needed to know mentally that, boy, if I get too stressed out, there's somewhere for me to go and it's accepted here. So that was really kind of cool. Probably the neatest thing about the whole conference, writing is a very solitary sort of experience most of the time. And we have these relationships with the with these people online. It's one of the reasons I wanted to go to this conference because I had interacted online with the host of this conference. I'd interacted online with people who run a podcast, the Sell More Book Show. I listened to that. I'd interacted online with Joanna Penn. I'd interacted online with Nick Stevenson, who was the guy who directed me towards my book cover designer. He's a very, very successful author. I'd interacted online with a lot of people. And I thought, this is a perfect chance to take that relationship to the next step and actually make it a little more concrete. What was amazing to me... Plus, you're funny in person. (laughs) I am funnier in person. But what was amazing to me was just how powerful the communal effect was, especially with writers. Like, if you go to a religious retreat, like you've gone to Steubenville or you're going to World Youth Day and things like that. They're amazing. They're religious highs. It's fantastic. Right. But any sort of that communal conference experience gives you like this emotional high because that's the way we are really designed to to interact with each other. 
virtual interaction or, or online interaction isn't nearly as fulfilling as the way we've been interacting as a species for millions of years. So there's this amazing sort of like invigorating communal connection that people had with each other, writer to writer. It's like it's like all of these communally starved people in a room full of communal food, right? It was just, you could eat as much as you want, so to speak. So I got to interact and talk with writers from all over the country at all different levels. And what's great about even the really successful ones, especially in the indie community, they never started out, quote unquote, their first job wasn't as a writer, right? Most of them are like, well, I was a housewife and then my writing took off and then my husband can quit his job and now we just do this full time. Or I worked in marketing or I worked in corporate America or I was in consultants or whatever. The successful people were all doing what the people who are not yet successful are doing now. So it was very like, look, we're just like you. I, I had your job like two years ago and now I don't. So there was never this separation, as I've said before. It was very much a, look, I totally get it. I was you. We're all in this together. What can I do to help you get you where I am, if possible? That and just talking to all these people, some introverts, some extroverts, but all with a shared experience of of trying to be a writer, it was a very, very powerful thing. Really, really powerful. That sounds fantastic. It really was. It was surprisingly powerful in that respect. Like I didn't, I thought I'd go there and get some information because, you know, you think of a work situation, right? I'm going to go to a meeting and write down some notes and I'll use like 10% of that that applies to me and then I'll go home. But this was far more powerful than that. And it was such a surprise, a pleasant surprise, but it was really amazing. Well, and again, I think that goes back to the creative community because creativity is intrinsically linked to passion. And so people are genuinely excited. Like I'm sure if people are going to like those Adobe Max conferences, there's an equal amount of this is so cool. I'm sharing all this awesome stuff. Whereas if you're passionate about business or science, going to those kinds of conferences, business related or science related, marketing, any of that other stuff will be really informative and really enjoyable, but not necessarily as passionate because they're a little bit more analytical in the way that that subject simply exists. Is that like if you're going to a scientific conference, that could be phenomenally exciting. You could be talking about the Big Bang Theory. You could be talking about cloning or whatever, you know, all these big scientific buzzwords nowadays. And a lot of people find that really exciting, but the creative community is known for being this really lively, passionate community, whereas other communities are not known for that as much. So it's it's cool to be able to enter into that place where there's an energy in the air. Right. And people who had been to a lot of other conferences, publishing conferences, writing conventions, things like that, said that they had never experienced anything like this at any of those other conferences. That's awesome. You picked a good one to start with. Yeah, I know. Well, and I think, again, that goes to the fact that in those other ones, it's like, here's the really successful people on the stage, behind the table, sitting there higher than you, and they're just going to talk to you. And it's a panel where they're just going to share their knowledge and you don't really get to do a lot. But what's great is that these people would go present and then they just come down and sit next to you, right? There wasn't this separation. It was just this whole, like I said, very communal sort of experience. And in the traditional publishing stuff, it's very much more that's separated by publishing houses or bookstores or things like that. It's not the author to author experience where everyone's in the same boat. So it was really, really amazing. And what was so interesting about the information that was covered, there were about six, six speakers, I think, over the two days, is that it could all be boiled down to two things. Their advice really boils down to two things which is you have to engage your fans by being you. 
and you need to tell a story. Now, I know that sounds funny, but it's amazing to me how consistently that was applied in everything. So this went from, for example, deciding whether to sell your books via just Amazon or selling it to all the other countries. Like, for example, some of the information that was cool that was presented was that India, for example, has more English readers than the U.S., Google is working on a way to actually connect the entire globe to the internet, either through drone planes or balloons and things like that. They have a, I forget the term for it. It's actually really cool to read about if that's something that you're interested in. I have read a little bit about Google's plans for that. And it's, again, very philanthropic in nature. Google just wants to connect the world. Right. And then you tie that with, in India, someone just released a $5 smartphone, okay, which makes 8 billion people in the world suddenly connected and available to read your stuff. And the majority of those people in the world read English, thanks to the British Empire. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was kind of exciting. Cheerio, mate. Right? Yeah, that was kind of exciting. But even that information, it came down to, okay, that's your decision, but your decision is based on where are your fans. Your fans are based on what is your relationship with them? How have you developed your relationship with them? There was another presenter, J.A. Huss, who does romance, and she's a very unique personality. So she kind of wins the battle just by being herself. Like she thinks of how to connect with her fans in ways that most people don't just because she's so unique as a person. But the one thing she was really adamant about was that you have to be 100% authentic. No one wants to just like, and, and what's so funny when you hear these things and you convert it into your own life, it makes perfect sense. But it's really hard to convert your own life into an author's life or a publishing strategy, so to speak. For example, she's like, no one likes to go online. And if you have friends in social media, no one wants to sit there and read only their successes, that their children are only great, and that <laughs> these people only go to the coolest places, right? No one really isn't likes that. that. What pre isn't that what people do online? <laughs> it, it is. But you know what I mean? No one's really attracted to that, you know? And especially if you're buying products, you really want to know their failings as well. So she was really adamant about, look, you have to be yourself in there and tell them when you screw up and say, man, I need your help because I made a mistake and could you please do this? And it's that honesty and that personality, which is where the relationships really develop. There's a reason people loved Jennifer Lawrence so much when she first came on the scene, because she's the only celebrity you can really think of who would just openly go, man, you can only crap your pants so many times before you have to go to the doctor. <laughs> right, like right. Which she said on a talk show. Which she said on a talk show. You know, I imagine her publicist, like, is bald I'm, at this I'm point. Just she like doesn't pulling. have one. <laughs> she did have one at one point because she mentioned it in an interview. Yeah, I got to imagine that that poor man or woman is bald at this point just from pulling out their hair and stress. Well, and you also think of Taylor Swift. We've talked about plenty of times, but she has an amazing relationship with her fan base because she is herself. And she interacts with them on a personal level. Right. And that's exactly what J.A. Huss was talking about. Another thing that she really does really well, and this is something... J.A. Huss or Taylor Swift? J.A. Huss. Is that I'm, and I'm going to do this with my novels, is she has, at the end of the book, and this is where, and, and I didn't think about this, but this is where the author is allowed to personalize each novel for the reader. And she calls it, I'll, I'll clean it up a little bit, but she calls it the back of book crap. All right. <laughs> it, that's actually the title, except it's not crap. Okay. And then she just tells what the story was based on or whatever inspired or whatever. And so when I recently gave a talk to the group here locally not too long ago, I shared with them the inspirations for each of the Gabby Wells novels and that they were all based in some sort of fear, some sort of scary moment or potential scary moment in my life that inspired the, the worst case scenario that Gabby should go through. And so I thought, well, that's a great example that I should have those in the back of each book. 
I should have that in the back of the book where the author note says, well, you know, Kneel and Pray was based on the fact when I was at a 4th of July celebration in our small town, I thought, boy, if someone wants to kill a lot of people, this is the right time. <laughs> now, that's not a great thing, but that was the inspiration. Like, wow, this would Only be slightly horrendous. disturbing. <laughs> My wife often goes, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really cool, though, because I remember there are some books that I read that are designated book club books, and they have discussion questions at the end. And I have always believed that any book can be a book club book, because there are so many ways that books can resonate with you. It doesn't have to be high literature to resonate with you. Harry Potter could be a book club book. I mean, it's an English class now at my college. Why can't it be a book club book? So if that's something that inspired you to write Gabby Wells, is this this concept of, well, this is what I'm afraid of, that could spark some really great discussions. And if those are things that you think about when you're writing, then, then that could be awesome to let your readers know. Right. So when I rebrand basically the Gabby Wells series, I'm going to add that to all the back of the books is what the moments that inspired me in that when I was writing the one for Neil and Prey on the flight home and I was like and it's also the Gabby's struggles are my struggles too with my health and all that other stuff and, and suffering and stuff and so it's as personal as I can get in regards to that subject you know I just had an interesting idea I doubt that I, I've known you a long time and you've yet to have one well since we share a brain um <laughs> all of my ideas should be interesting to you <laughs> self-insults um one of your concerns with writing these stories has been it's a young adult series. Right. And it was adapted from a movie, which would have been much less weird to have a father writing a movie about a teenager than you think it is for a father to be writing a book series about a teenager. Yeah, I, I talked a lot about that to other writers, and, I'm, and they're like, why is that a problem? Because, again, I'm the only one doing this, right? Mm -hmm. I'm the only, only one doing young adult and thriller. And they're like, why would that be bad? I'm like, hi, little girl. Do you want to read my book in the back of my van? And they're like, <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. Well, you know, it's interesting. I just thought it might be funny if you tell a story about your teenage years, like when you were Gabby's age. Like, like it would be funny if just a note from the author. When I was 15, this is what I was doing. Here's what Gabby's doing. Enjoy. <laughs> right. You know, that might be something to look into, too. Yeah. Oh. That could be funny. Gabby's because that so could... much more smarter, wise, and worldly than I was at 15. I was a moron at 15. I know. That's why it could be so funny. Uh, Plus, know. you had like a, a pretty sheltered childhood. That's so. what I mean. That'd be <laughs> awful. You know what I did at 15? I watched Star Trek every day at four. How many times did you see Indiana Jones? Um, in one summer, 75, I think. Okay, you have to put that in the book. It Just was... put that in your author's notes. When I was what? How old were you when that movie came out? So I was 16. When I was 16, I saw Indiana Jones 75 times in one summer. When Gabby was 16, well, there you go. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That could well, be a good way to connect with your fans. Yeah, it could be. And what's really funny is that with J.A. Huss, her back of book crap is so popular with her fans that when she has people read the advanced reader copies, those are called ARCs, she doesn't put the back of book crap in it. The people who read the arcs will buy the book just to get the back of book crap. That's so funny. Yeah. That's so, so smart. Right. And so she does a lot of this stuff. Now, she's unique here. Like, for example, for her job for a long time was to be a hog farm smeller. What? That's it. I don't know. You have to explain. Well, she lived in a rural area where um, the scent of hog farms w was uh, it was regulated because it would be too powerful for nearby residents. And so her job was to go around and smell hog farms and determine whether they were... Did she provide solutions or I did she I don't just know. smell? I don't know. She didn't really go into that, but that's a kind of unique person. She, she did that for like eight years. 
So anyway. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like myself in that job and whether I would find that interesting or just like whether I'd want to kill myself. <laughs> like if this is your life, you smell hog farms for a living. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of interesting. So another presentation was on audiobooks. His name was James Ton, and he said, this is what the do's and don'ts of doing an audiobook. And when he got done with that, he's like, how many people have done the wrong thing? And almost everybody who was in audiobooks had done the wrong thing. What are some of the do's and don'ts? Well, one of the things is that currently, if you sign with the um, Audible audiobooks company, you give away your rights for seven years. So no, right. Seven years in, in this world is a long, long time, because if you think seven years ago, ebooks didn't exist. Right. So what's going to happen in seven years? Anyway, so he talked about that. And in the question and answer session, I asked him, I said, are audiobooks always going to be audio versions of a literary experience? In other words, I'm just hearing the book read to me. Or is there a place for radio shows like old time radio shows? He says, yeah, we call those audio dramas. And we've actually tried to do that here and there. Because in seven years, after people have been listening to books being read to them, some people may want an enhanced version of that. So they're trying to be ahead of the curve of that. And we talked about from the beginning that we would much rather have the Gabby Wells series be an audio drama than a straight literary read. Well, and you never know, too, how other things in the world are going to affect that. Like talking about Harry Potter again. When the movies came out, the theme of Harry Potter is so popular that when I was listening to the audiobook version of Harry Potter a few months ago, it literally sounded wrong to me because it didn't open with a bum bum ba dun 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 dun. So I literally pulled up that song and played it in the beginning and then eased myself into the story. And I'm like, okay, this is right. Like, this is the. The world of Harry Potter. Yeah, this is the ambiance. This is what I was expecting because that theme song is so intrinsically to me related to that story that it's unfathomable for me to even begin that story without it because almost every movie starts with that theme. Right, right. So that was a really interesting presentation. And then there was another one by Andre Chaperon. Chaperon. There's no E at the end of that name, so I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced. With respect to the gentleman, we do not know how to pronounce your name. (laughs) But he was he was a really intense introvert who wasn't even going to present because he was so introverted. But they said, listen, it's going to be really relaxed and whatever. And he did. And it was great. He now here's a funny thing on the business side of writing. There's a thing called autoresponders. So if people signed up for your mailing list that you could do autoresponders, which automatically kick off at day two after they've signed up day four, day 12. You could do as long as you want. And that's a very, you'd think that'd be a very dry subject as far as writing goes. And it can be. But what's so great about his presentation is, and the reason his are so successful, is that in those autoresponders, he tells a story. And he never finishes the story at the end of an autoresponder. So it continues it, on into the next one. Oh my gosh, one. that's awesome. Right? So, I almost want to sign up for his email list now. <laughs> right. I don't even know what he writes. Well, he does, he, he does nonfiction stuff. But the point oh, is that he still tells the story. Because then it's truth. So the point, so that was where I'm sitting there going, these are just like J.A. Huss, build a relationship, Andre Chaperon, tell a story. So it's A-N-D-R-E-C-H-A-P-E-R-O-N. E-R-O-N. Like Chaperon. Yeah, I'm going to have to Google him. Yeah. That was kind of one of these things where I'm like. You got one new subscriber. I have his link to his, I'll have to find his link. I'll put it in the show notes, but I have a link to his website. I'm actually going to sign up too, because I want to see how he puts these together. But, I'm such a story addict. Even the idea of a story being available, I'm like, ooh, give it to me. Right, but it's but the thing is, is that you're not telling a story. You're not like 
telling a fiction story, it's that you're, so for example, in an autoresponder, I could be introducing the reader to me as a person, but I just wouldn't finish that story in the end of the autoresponder. You'd have that to get so to the next smart. one and the next one. So yeah, it is really smart. And that's where the you're sitting there going, I'm a writer who writes page turners. How did I not think of this? <laughs> right? I end every chapter with something that you should want to go to the next chapter on. And I didn't think of that when it comes to autoresponders. Another presenter was Joanna Penn, and she talked about the future of publishing, and she's been really sharp on this stuff. And she was the one who brought up the $5 smartphone and the 8 billion potential readers in the future. But one of the things that she talked about is in the future, there will probably be AI, artificial intelligence, writing books. So where does that put authors who write books? But her whole point was that People will buy your stuff if they have a relationship with you because they won't want an AI book. They'll want a Dorothea Bauer book or a Pete Bauer book. It goes back to the same thing J.A. Haas said, develop a relationship with your fan base. There was other things that she talked about, some of the areas that she thought storytelling can go into. And it's a lot of different things that are could be virtual reality stuff, could be gaming situations, things like that. As an author, you can sit there and go, man, I'm just figuring out this writing thing, right? Now you want me to learn something new? But at the end of it, it's no different than the way any business would approach social media. So uh, right now, I'm, I'm more heavily in Instagram and Facebook than anything else. I have a Twitter account, but I don't do much with that. But I don't have to do any of those, or I could do all of them. And her whole point was, you can do any of these or none of them. It's entirely up to you, but here's some of the areas that it would be. And in my history, it was a lot like the difference between writing a book and writing a screenplay. You could tell the same story, different formats, different structures, different outcome. So I understood it conceptually, I think, faster than some others. But then I would just have to pick and choose what I would actually want to engage in. But it was really nice. She was so energetic and so positive, and she's just so full of energy and, and has this beautiful British accent. It was, it was fun to watch. Two other people that presented was Julia Kent. She's a very successful uh, romance author, and she talked about going wide. And what that basically means, and this is what I chose from the beginning, even though it hurts me financially now, is that I am not Amazon exclusive. I'm in Amazon and Kobo and iBooks and all these different things because to me that's a smarter long-term business decision because my idea is that I want to see where I am in five years. To me, I have a five-year plan for this endeavor and at the end of those five years, then I'll determine whether I'm successful or not. So this is a smart strategic decision for me even though it doesn't. It makes me probably a lot less money in that respect right now. And then Nick Stevenson spoke and he talked about mailing lists and things like that. And again, he came back to the very simple thing of you have to engage your audience, you have to interact with them as a person, and you have to develop a relationship with them and tell stories. So it was just those two things over and over and over again in some of the most disparate subjects. It just resonated over and over. Well, we are a storytelling people. We have been since the beginning of time. That's all we do. I mean, as people, as a species, that's all we do. We're, I'm telling a story right now. Jokes are stories. Everything's a story. Probably the coolest day, though, the coolest thing that happened to me a lot of these people, again, I had known online and, and been very impressed by. Now, my experience working in the entertainment industry is I don't, I'm never really a fan of people. I, I, even though I may be a fan, I don't ever treat them as a fan. I want to understand and treat them as an equal and understand what they're doing well so I can do it. So these, a lot of these people that, were, that I've spoken about were people that I had been following and just really impressed with and would love to be 10% as successful as they are. One of the things I did is I sent a thank you video to the people who were running the conference. This is after I did Kneel and Pray, and it was just, I always tried to be very grateful. So I sent them a video just for them and a couple of other people, the people in charge of the Sell More Book Show, Joanna Penn, Nick Stevenson. I just sent it to them and 
and said, listen, um, you guys have been influential in helping me get this book made. And I just wanted to thank you. And I just thanked them individually for the pieces that, that inspired me during the creation of it. And, you know, if you hadn't published your book too early, you wouldn't have had a chance to make those videos. <laughs> that, that is true. That is true. So what was funny is I was I was talking to, when I first met Sean Platt, who was one of the guys running the show, I said, hi, I'm Pete. And I sent you. He's like, yeah, I, you got that video. He goes, dude, you made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's like, because I told him that basically... They've inspired thousands and thousands of people. And and I think of my parents and all their grandkids. And I thought this book is like a creative grandchild of theirs, you know, because without them and their inspiration and their tutelage, this wouldn't exist. I said, so you guys have thousands of creative grandchildren out there. And so that touched him so much. He's like, he's like, so yes, I showed my kids and my wife and we're watching it. My kid's like, dad, why are you crying? (laughs) So it's really funny. And so what was funny, too, is that Joanna Penn, who I contacted off and on online, again, she's uber successful. I go up to introduce myself and I go, hi. And she's like, oh, you're Pete. And it was like just really cool. Like, oh, you do know me. And it's like, that was really neat. But probably the coolest thing was we were going to lunch the first day and Brian Cohen, who I'd interacted with on the Some More Book Show, and I talked to him the night before in person. He was leading this walk towards a restaurant, which ended up being like a freaking mile away it was good, but it was a mile away. And so, but what's cool is that in this entourage of people were everyone that I respected. There was um, the guy in charge of Kobo, Mark Lefebvre. There was Chris Fox, who was, who was really hot right now, releasing both fiction and nonfiction about how to write faster. There was Nick Stevenson, who got me my book cover designer. And I talked with him almost the entire time. And it was like having a free one-on-one session with this marketing guru. And one of the things he said, he's like, well, Pete, if you're writing in a niche market, you can actually charge more for that. So um, he goes, it's harder to find your audience, but once you find it, if you want to, if they want it and they're not going to get it anywhere else, you can charge more. So news update. <laughs> Prices are Books going Books are going up. <laughs> no, I probably, I, I won't do that. But it, it was it was that kind of just like real, because he comes from a marketing background before he started writing. So he totally gets both sides of that. So it's just great to have that. I had lunch with Brian and Jim who run the Sell More Book Show and, and Chris and, and just to have that whole lunch with these were literally the day before I had only known them very peripherally. And here I am having lunch with all of these leaders in the industry at once and just sitting there talking. And we went to this Texas place, which was funny because they serve meat by the pound. So like you get your sides and they're like, how many Welcome pounds to of Texas? Meat? How many pounds of meat do you want? And I'm like, can I get a third of a pound? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> they weren't happy. I'm like, I'm a Floridian. I don't I don't eat that much. But those things were the coolest things is that, again, tying that online connection to a personal connection. And then there were so many people that just in between sessions, we just sit in the chairs and turn the chairs around and face each other and talk. Um, There was a thriller mastermind group, which is basically just the thriller genre. People got together after the conference on the first day, had dinner together and just shared where they were in the process and what they were doing. There's a guy, Boyd, who's writing prepper fiction, and he's pumping out like one book every other month or something like that, and he's making a really good living doing it. He found his niche, and he provides to it, you know? That's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just really, really cool, and it's it's something that you just can't do online. You can't create that sort of connections online. You, there's so much more information we share through facial expressions, humor, things like that, that never translate online. Never does. It's like online, you're getting like 30% of a person. And so that 70% you get when you're actually interacting with them face to face is just so much more gratifying. 
and it was cool. The, the one last story I'll tell, which was fun. The first morning we were having breakfast and I, I just walked up to a table of people I had kind of recognized online, but I never met them. And there was an open chair and a, and a woman, Jamie, she says, oh, she recognized me. She's like, oh, sit down, sit down. So we were talking about weird names um, that we have been called in our life. And of course, <laughs> my story came up that my parents have always called me Steve. So, and then I told the story that I was originally supposed to be called Francis. <gasps> yeah. Until you just told people what your middle name is. I, know. I said I was originally supposed to be called Francis until, uh, thankfully, my brothers and sisters before I was born were already calling me Peter before my parents decided to call me Stephen. I, I love that your siblings did that. I love that your parents were like, oh, we're going to name him Francis, and they're going to be like, no, you're not. No, no. Well, <laughs> I, am, I am eternally grateful that they did that. But the funny thing is, is that then we were coming up with, as a group, we were just laughing about that, and we were coming up with the worst name you could name your son. And that was Sissy Francis. <laughs> so, so what was funny is that that became the name we all called each other whenever we saw each other. So even I even sent Jamie a letter afterwards thanking her for you know getting to know her and stuff, and she signed it Sissy Francis. So That's it's hilarious. funny that my naming problem, which is the foundation of this show, <laughs> ended up being like this running gag at the conference. It was kind of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. So a lot of really great information, a lot of to-dos that I have to do, but it just amazed me that it all comes down to being yourself with your fans and telling stories. That's pretty much it. It was amazing. So be authentic and uh, tell a story. Yeah. So if you are, and this has nothing to do with writing, if you have an interest and there's a group gathering about it, you really should go. I mean, I've been on, on a lot of religious retreats. Like I said, you're going to World Youth Day. What's up? And it's just it's just the human experience is far more gratifying than the online one. So make it happen. It'll be far more valuable to you and give you much more appreciation for whatever that area of interest is. And it will give you connection to people who share that interest in ways that you can never get online. And it does highlight, though, how incredibly wonderful the power of the Internet is. Because if it wasn't for the Internet, you wouldn't have had a chance to meet all these people. So no, that's true. That's you know, true. it's 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 a good vision for the future is integrating online and in-person relationships. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome. So that's kind of the my experience. The final thing I'll say is that while I was there, um, I stayed at my brother Paul's house and saw my sister-in-law, Jean, and uh, their son, Jonathan, my, my godson and my nephew, and his wife, Shanna. We had dinner together. And then in Austin, my niece, Laura, and her husband, Paul, lived there. So I got to have dinner with them. And that was probably the coolest thing out of the whole experience was that it was a combination of seeing family that I love and I hadn't seen and having this really cool writing experience. So it was like the best of both worlds. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So. I miss you guys. This is not just a family show, you know. Reel it in. At this gun time. <laughs> Are you sure? We, we can. <laughs> Hi, Barbie. <laughs> we have fans that are not just relatives. Your family in my heart. <laughs> All right. So anyway, that is our show this week. We'll get back into more specific storytelling topics, but there's a lot of good information related in that about storytelling, even in business. I am so glad that you went. It sounds like it was an amazing experience for there, you. It really was. It really was awesome. And there's a certain level of competition now that I feel I have to write more and faster because I talk good. To, yeah, I know. Competition is a good thing. I know. It I gets a it. lot of crap, but it's a good thing. <laughs> it should never get a lot of crap. It is an awesome thing. So, yeah, pretty cool. That wraps up today's episode. Yes, if you'd like to contact us, you can contact me at pete at petebauerbooks.com. Or feel free to comment below or rate us on iTunes. So thank you very much, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Bye.